Hey everybody, it's James Tiley and Johnny Fry. We are back, always over at Team Blockchain, Digital Bytes Podcast, where we bring on the best of the best. We have guests that you normally don't interact with on like social media. You know, not those guys screaming about buying a dip. This time, we got Zed Tarar. He's an MBA candidate over at the uh, London Business School. It's always, always, always by Johnny. Always the <laughs> London people, I don't know. But this guy, he works at Web3 Startups. And what I think is kind of unique, he's got a special license plate, or at least he used to. I don't know how many license plates you've had that said U.S. Diplomat, Zed. Hey, James, thanks for having me, Johnny. Thank you for um, plugging me in here. Uh, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a, I'm slightly embarrassed to say I've had a couple of diplomatic license plates, but thankfully, they're just, they're pretty anonymous, so... When I'm driving around, if I if I make a a parking uh, a boo boo, uh, it doesn't get immediately labeled with you know bad American. So <laughs> I need one of those permits. Yeah, you James, you definitely need those because you're always doing a boo boo in your car. I know whether you have got your gas cars or your EV, but uh, but there goes Ed. Delighted to have you on the show, um, and and really intrigued by your title because. Um, you know, you're, you know, you've been a diplomat in, as you say, five different countries, what, 14, 15 years, mm-hmm. and you find your way into the sort of the mad, bad world of sort of blockchain and crypto. And you're saying, why diplomats and governments have to pay attention to crypto? Why? Not? What, what's all that about then? Yeah, you know, you're right, Johnny. I've, I've been doing this for uh, 13 years now. This is uh, my, my fifth uh uh, posting. I've uh, been in Italy. I've been in the UAE. I've been in Pakistan, back in Washington, uh, doing a couple different things. And, you know, uh, throughout my career, one common thread has been kind of the role of technology and particularly uh, um, anti, uh, sort of, rather, I should say, um, particularly censorship resistance and the immutability of communication. So, you know, one of my earliest uh, experiences in in my diplomatic career, I was in the Middle East in uh, 2011. Of course, as many of us know, that is when the Arab uprisings began. And it was also the the moment where Twitter played an outsized role in letting people get together and uh, share ideas and, and share even tactical information to each other. You know, of course, at the time, it seemed very novel. And I think at the time, we were all a bit naive in thinking, well, it's the internet, so it will forever remain uh, censorship resistant. And of course, as we know, over the years, uh, governments have figured out ways to block services that they don't like, and have even been able to, in, in the cases of social media companies, strong arm them into doing things um, that that these authoritarian regimes want. And so what that that sort of sparked my interest in technology and how technology influences not just domestic politics, but also international politics, right? And through this last decade, uh, we've seen technology companies take on even bigger roles uh, in international politics. And so following that theme, you know, I've started a few years ago, going down the, the, the proverbial rabbit hole with crypto and realized very quickly, once you dig down to the real sort of uh, um, infrastructure level that this this time, the protocols that we're talking about are really different and fundamentally uh, really interesting. And I think have the potential, uh, like I'm sure many of your listeners do, have the potential of really, uh, really changing things. 
Okay, so 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 basically, what we're talking about here is, as you say, we've seen you know a number of social media sites. Um, unfortunately, some of them are banned in different jurisdictions, um, and you have these sort of um, not iron curtains, but certainly big firewalls you can't get through. Certainly across Asia, I know it's very difficult to send emails and the like, and things like LinkedIn and Twitter and um, TikToks around a little bit, but that tend tend to get used as much. But what we're now seeing from what you're saying is is the technology of blockchain and that's given advent to these sort of digital assets, um, which it's harder for governments to completely lock down unless they lock down the internet completely. But because the, the decentralized nature, I suppose, of the technology. Yeah, this this ever absolutely right. Uh, Johnny, I think, yes, there's the immutability and the censorship resistance, but there's also, of course, uh, the inherent protection of a decentralized protocol. So there's no CEO of um, blockchain or, or Ethereum that you can just ring up and threaten. Uh, you know, if you don't censor such and such wallet addresses, you're in big trouble. Well, there, there isn't any central um, entity that you could you could uh, pressure to have your way. And I think you know that's certainly where its biggest uh, sort of power comes from. It's that immutability and the censorship resistance, that decentralized very nature of it uh, and open source nature. And then when you start going into the possible applications, yes, there's things like a decentralized social graph. Um, There's uh, peer-to-peer encrypted messaging, of course, that could um, really transform the way that we, we communicate. But really it's, you know, having solved now the double spend problem, it opens up uh, the the entire blockchain network to allow people to exchange value, right, and to to record things. So uh, we're talking um, decentralized identity solutions, right, that could absolutely transform uh, the way that that citizens all over the world are able to interact with with services. And of course, there's um, keeping track of value, and and that means digital assets. And, you know, in the piece, I make the the point that you're, you don't check to see where a person is physically located when you send them an email. You just pop in their address and you hit the send button. You don't care if they're in Miami or if they're in Mogadishu. The email is going to get to them as long as they're connected to the internet. And we're now seeing the early phases of uh, actual assets being able to follow a similar trajectory, as in you'll no longer need to care where someone's physically located or their or their nationality or citizenship. You'll be able to tra- transfer value back and forth to them, just like you would an email. Okay, so if I go back ten years ago, if if you went off on, on on vacation or holiday, you used to have that dreadful out of office assistant, and it would say, "Oh, you know, I'm away for a couple of weeks. I'll you know I'll be back soon." Um, you see less and less of that these days, and you never get that on a WhatsApp message, for example. Um, people seem to be accessible, contactable, you know, whether they're on away or not. Uh, and and what you're saying, though, is that if I want to do a transaction with you or we want to swap some sort of asset, um, you don't need to know, you know, who I bank with. You don't even necessarily need to know where I'm based geographically, because I could be on the move. I could be, you know, one of these digital nomads to be, you know, a bit, bit like yourself. You've worked in a number of different countries over the last sort of 13 years and it's all i want to do is are you good for your money and if i swap my asset are you going to pay me and is that is that what we mean by a a more decentralized type society economy that we seem to be evolving that's right and i think 
you know, Johnny, you, you made a really good point. You're right. You know, WhatsApp, uh, WhatsApp uh, banners don't have an out of office, right? Like you're just, you're hopefully connected to the internet um, uh, in most places. There's a few uh, places on earth where even WhatsApp gets, uh, gets blocked every now and then. But hopefully you're not in one of those jurisdictions and you're you're reachable. And that's, yes, one of the beauties of uh, blockchain decentralized ledger technology is that you uh, don't need to worry about an exchange being open or closed on holidays um, or about getting blacklisted by an authoritarian government. Uh, you, you always have access to it as long as you're able to connect to the internet. And right, there's... Uh, I think as someone who's worked in a number of different countries and have worked on issues that involve countries where there are massive uh, governance failures, places where institutions are lacking, one of the beauties of something like Ethereum is that you can take governance architectures and institutions and strength from upper income countries, uh, from uh, the immutability of code and servers running all over the world, and then sort of place that as a layer on top of a a jurisdiction that perhaps doesn't have those same kinds of institutions and protections. So what that means is you're essentially able to import the um, trust in something like Ethereum into all sorts of jurisdictions where maybe you can't trust the local government and you can't trust the infrastructure that you're working with. With this, you can you can skip that and and go straight to the blockchain. Right. So th- this gets the the sort of the the rub of your or the nub at least of your article. You know, why should diplomats and governments you know care or even pay attention to crypto? And from what you're saying is that effectively you can create like a a blueprint or a is like a like a manual of how to, how to do something based on tried and tested principles. Um, of openness and fairness and transparency and then go to a government or go to an institution that's saying look what we want to do is we want to run it in a similar way to xyz country um but if we we don't have the whole infrastructure in 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 the in the developing country but what you can say is that look here's a way you can have a system which is already there it's yours you have control over it but the template there and the infrastructure there, because effectively we can run it in the cloud and it's not reliant on someone having a key and a safe and a big door to make sure everything's locked up at night, being, you know, being very simplistic about it. So it's, it's a ready-made governance system um, where perhaps currently some of those systems and architecture don't exist. Yeah, that's really well put, uh, Johnny. And, and I would add on top of that, not only can you then uh, sort of rely on this uh, decentralized sort of trustless system that's that's immutable and censorship resistance. But what that also means is that you're able to take some of the ideals of the 21st century and some of the ideals uh, of uh, Western democracies, certainly, but of democracies everywhere, and help spread those in a meaningful, practical way. So it's one thing to say that people should be free and that they're fundamental human rights should be respected. But it's another to be able to actually generate services that benefit, uh, you know, everyday regular folks. And, you know, what does that look like? For example, that could mean uh, decentralized finance and access to credit, even in jurisdictions where 
maybe the banking system doesn't function very well, or maybe there's there's um, huge you know governance and uh, other issues on 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 sort of the basic infrastructure. Well, with with blockchain, with something like Ethereum, you wouldn't need to rely so much on your local jurisdiction for um, storing and exchanging value. Okay, but could this be seen as a a back war, a back way, a, a secret way that the imperialistic um, sort of um, old habits and a certain, you know, look look at the UK. You know, it used to have an empire that disappeared hundred years, well, not quite hundred, but certainly hundred years ago. And people say, yes, but do we really want to have systems and structures based on what you do here in the UK or parts of Europe or indeed America? Is it a good thing that we're imposing? Our so-called structures on, on people. Yeah, you know, Johnny, that's a that's a really good point. And I think you know, I don't want to speak on behalf of the uh, Ethereum Foundation, uh, or for that matter, on, on behalf of the global. Uh, oh God, speak on behalf of Joe Biden. Certainly, but what what I can say is, you know, take a look at where the most recent um, you know Ethereum developer conference was. Right, that was in Bogota, just a, a right week and a half ago. Right. And if you look past at the the past conferences, you'll see they're all over the place. They're not San Francisco, New York, uh, Austin, right? Um, let alone you know other Western European countries. They're all over the place. And if you were to ask anyone involved in uh, decentralized ledger technology today, whether it's on the development side, whether it's on implementation, or even on the venture capital side, if you ask them, hey, where's the geographic center for blockchain? Uh, where's the geographic center for crypto? I don't think you'd get a consensus. I don't think you'd really be able to point to Absolutely one right. geographies yep. and yep. say, oh, well, it's Miami. Oh, it's it's Switzerland. That, yep. That's because it really is a global movement and it's decentralized. And we've had both um, success stories and, of course, uh, massive scandals in uh, in South Korea, in Vietnam. We're seeing uh, evolution in places like Switzerland, but we're seeing massive adoption in places like Argentina and Brazil. And so I think what that means is the ideals that we're talking about um, go beyond any one specific culture or even geography. They they sort of elevate to um, fundamental human aspirations for, for being free and prosperous. Okay, brilliant. James, um... Any 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 thoughts on what our, our learned friend here Zed saying this afternoon to us? Well, it's I actually had a conversation recently with some, I guess you consider them heavy hitters, right? Social media influencer people. I won't name them, and uh, I wish I had the article in front of me. Their their argument was, or what they validated a use case was, uh, they were arguing about Twitter and bots, right? Everybody has that bot issue. And they said mm-hmm. in social media, if it was on a, if it was Web three on a blockchain, they use those terms relatively useless, you know, leniently. They were talking about well, if you charged everybody, then you wouldn't have as many bots because of the money. And I immediately said to myself, I'm not going to use a service that I pay for, right? I mean, mm-hmm. at times I do, but but I use a free social media is free. So when you, when you have these Web3 startups, have you, when, when, when you, like you said, Gia, run by your friends connecting real-life borrowers, that's financial, right? Emergency markets with capital. But mm-hmm. when you, do you hear that often? Is it always about the money? 
Or is there a way that they could tokenize but give the tokens? Maybe you have to prove that you're human by manipulating the tokens somehow. I don't know. But they always default back to trying to make money. And I, and I don't see uh, a promising future in that aspect. You know, James, I think that's a, um, that's a really uh, pretty deep uh, point uh, because I think, you know, you know, that old saying is like, there's two kinds of people, it's the kind of people that divide people into two kinds of people, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I'm going to do that now and commit that <laughs> sin. But I, I really think there's, there's two big uh, um, circles with an overlap, those that famous sort of Venn diagram. And there's folks who are just thinking to themselves, all right, how do I extract the most amount of value from this emerging trend? Where's the money to be made? Let me go in and uh, extract as much cash as, cash as I can. And I think you'll always have um, those uh, that gold rush kind of mentality anytime there's a new industry that's um, that's sort of mushrooming um, in, a, in a free market economy, that's that's just one of the things that we we need to accept. I think when it comes down to the folks who are really trying to build on um, distributed ledger technology, folks who are trying to really um, come up with practical use cases for Web3, I think there, the question, at least the conversations that I've had, the question is, is this economically viable? Nobody wants to build something that falls apart or needs to have massive injections of capital from advertisers or some sort of government grant or what have you, right? You want to be able to create a system that's self-sustaining. And I think that that is going to be the real trick, right? So it's easy enough to see how for-profit models could leverage decentralized uh, ledger technology. But what about things that seem more like uh, public goods like a uh, you know uh, like a social media platform if you don't have advertising money supporting it then what is going to fuel it and I don't know that we necessarily have a clear answer to that question yet I think the model that we have though is uh, email and SMTP and that uh, protocol the protocol is free and open source the servers that run it are not just running email they're running other things and so the SMTP protocol level is free. And then you have applications built on top of them, like Gmail, like Outlook, and they have various funding models. Maybe they're freemium, maybe you can use limited parts of it, and then you need to pay for other things. The difference between sort of Gmail and Outlook and Web3 actually isn't that huge because that's what we're talking about with Web3. We're talking about the protocol level and what sits on top of it may have different uh, economics and, and different mechanisms. But yeah, I'm going to think of that I'd come back to you on that. There are, there are examples of um, effectively digital assets being given away for free. Um, we've seen a huge growth in the number of loyalty schemes. Um, most recently, we saw Starbucks. You know, they're, they're effectively giving people NFTs as, as a loyalty mechanism. But then we've also, and I know we've discussed this before, people like um, SC Johnson, um, working with Plastic Bank, and they're giving away tokens rather than cash as an incentive and a way for people to recycle um, plastic. And you know, I think they've done a something like two twenty million kilograms of plastic they've picked up now in the last sort of seven eight years in various projects in Egypt and Indonesia and Malaysia. So, so there are examples of the assets being used, nothing to do with money 
from the issuer, but as a way to incentivize, encourage sort of behavior. And you could well see that happening in other areas, I'm sure. Yeah, I, I, I certainly think so. I think, uh, you know, I, I really think this is, um, and I'm not the only one, of course, to say this, but I think we're really at the point uh, today with Web3, uh, as we were probably in 1994 in the internet. And so we're having a hard time understanding and conceptualizing some of the use cases, just as people in 1994 had a hard time uh, imagining something like Netflix or or Amazon, for that matter, let alone TikTok. And so I think the actual practical everyday applications are still crystallizing, and it may be at least you know five or so years before we we look back at this point and think, oh well, this. This application seems so obvious. I can't believe we didn't think about this five years ago. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, Ed, thank you very much for coming on. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to try and twist your arm and get you to write an article about Web through the metaverse as a diplomat. But maybe we'll we'll wait for for a few more weeks for I get you to put pen to paper. Well, please don't put pen to paper. You put fingers on a keyboard these days, don't you? But um, Zed, thank you very much for for joining us today. And and James, thanks for. Um, getting things organized um, for another show. Uh, if anyone would like a copy of Zed's um, article, then um, all you've got to do is just go to www.digitalbytes.substack.com and you'll see Zed's article is there. Um, and otherwise, from that, we'll be back next week with a, another Digibyte show. Um, James, all okay? Anything else before we go? Have I missed anything? I was going to say that this is the perfect example of where you'd say, if you're listening to the show inside the Cyber FM app, you're earning free FMR. There you go. Another example of free crypto. Okay. Zed, thank you. Thank you, James. And most importantly, thank you for listening to the Digital Byte Show. And we'll be back next week with a, another edition. <laughs>